the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape and beer production, with additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. If you build it, you will come. Chances are you probably recognize that quote from the iconic, totally cheeseball, but pretty awesome 1980s film, Field of Dreams, where a struggling farmer, played by Kevin Costner, decides to plow under his crops to build a baseball diamond in the middle of nowhere because he hears this voice. If you build it, you will come. The film maybe about baseball on the surface, but really it's kind of an allegory about chasing dreams on entrepreneurship and the American dream. I think every entrepreneur has that field of dreams moment. And whether they fail or succeed, that voice blowing out in the wind or rattling around in their heads is a blessing and a curse. Powerful ideas often demand that we leave the comfort of a safety net. We quit a nine to five, we take out a second mortgage on a home, we plow over a perfectly good field of corn to build a baseball diamond. Along the way, we can expect to be called crazy one day, and then the next be called brilliant. I had a friend here in Seattle who owned a construction business, and he described it best. He said, it's what I imagine it would be like to be manic. One moment you are on top of the world, and a few hours later, you feel like it's all going to go to hell. It's been 14 years. Like, when you look back at it, it's like this. But when you're in it, sometimes it grinds on. The, the hard times go really slow, and the good times go by really fast. This is Jeff Pensero. You may not have heard of him, but if you're a snowboarder, you probably know what he's built. Bald Face Lodge, just outside of Nelson, B.C. It is a real-life version of Costner's Field of Dreams for snowboarders and skiers. Today we present If You Build It. A story about following an idea to its conclusion, no matter what the obstacles are. In this case, the recipe for success involves true love, some of the biggest names in snowboarding, Foo Fighters, and a guy named Tuna Man. If you start on the edge, one day you might find yourself at the center of it all. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. This story, like so many, starts with a girl. The girl that I was engaged to, my college sweetheart, and I decided to break up. Because she really wanted to go to India. And I realized I don't have any interest at all in going <laughs> to India, as non-hip as that may be. Like, India is great and everything, but I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I made it to Lake Tahoe, and I was just getting a taste of how rad it is to live in the mountains. This was 1996. Jeff was working for a snowboarding company out of Chico Cali called Glissade. He worked in sales and helped manage athletes' travel budgets. 
He learned a lot, but despite loving his job, Jeff was getting antsy. And then the breakup happened. It was this epiphany of like, wow, we're two people who love each other, but we're not really following the same path right now. And we broke up. And then I quit my job. And I was 26 years old. And I was like, I, I got to go do something awesome right now. So I really did not have any money at all. I was a handyman in Tahoe, like putting people's gutters back on and like fixing people's docks. I heard about a heli operation up in British Columbia that I contacted and said, my dream is to go heli skiing sometime myself. So if there's ever a cancer, I can't afford it, but if there's ever a deal, whatever, like give me a call. Sure enough, he got a call towards the end of the season. So Jeff loaded up and drove up to Illouette, British Columbia to go heli skiing. But I was a snowboarder. I was the only snowboarder, or there was one more, and they really kind of treated us like kooks when we were up there, and the experience was really limited. Like, we went to amazing places, but we didn't really do the amazing lines. We just kind of enjoyed the powder, but I wasn't really challenged at all. And I was even kind of yelled at when I would be like, bury from the group a little and go jump off of something. There's also another little twist. Paula's dad happened to be on the trip. As I was leaving the lodge, he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, you know, Paula's back and she's over in this little town called Nelson in BC. She's the editor of the newspaper there. And for what it's worth, you know, you guys were great. You know, you should, even if you guys never get back together, you should go reconnect, you know? Jeff started driving back to Tahoe. He stopped in Seattle and hung out with his good friend, Arlie. They stayed up late drinking coffee and Jeff told him about Paula. And I remember my friend Arlie looked at me and he's like, look, tomorrow morning you wake up and you drive south to Tahoe or you drive east to Nelson. And when you get in your car, you got to make a decision which way you're going to go. And it was this great moment. So I got on I-90 and I drove over to Spokane and then I drove up to Nelson and literally out of the movies, it just started snowing. And Nelson is such a beautiful town. And I roll into this town in BC and, and then I literally parked my truck and was like, all right, I'm going to check this out. I wonder how I find Paula around here. And I turn the corner and I walk up the street and there's a big plate glass window and sitting at a computer is Paula behind the window. And literally, it was like, oh my God, we totally fell in love again. And uh, after a couple of days of reconnecting, I took off back to Tahoe and was like, I'm going to find a way to make this work. I don't know what it is, but I don't care. If I fail, I'm, I can always go back and be a sales rep. I know I can do it. Jeff headed home to Tahoe to pick up some more work. He was chatting with his good friend, Jim Fraps, who works at a pizza parlor. Jeff tells him about this heli ski trip. Jim says that he's been thinking about going cat skiing in BC, but all the operators are like booked for two years. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, if those places are sold out and they don't even know that snowboarding's exploding down here in Northern California and everywhere, it just kind of hasn't made it into the mountains up there yet so much. Man, that we should, you know, like maybe there could be a lodge that would be less kind of like farming terrain and kind of, um, you know, coming from a different ethic, you know, maybe the kind of snowboarding ethic could weasel its way in there somewhere and we could have our own place up there. After that, Jeff started making regular trips to see Paula, but it was also kind of about the chance to investigate the possibility of a lodge. He started talking to town people, the mayor, business owners. Jim would join him for recon. 
at first I was coming up and we were just getting in the truck with a snowmobile and driving around and driving the snowmobile up drainages and then a snowshoeing with a snowboard on my back, sometimes solo and just go send it up weird drainages to see what the terrain was like up high. Marking on topo maps and stuff, flying in fixed wing airplanes, big loops and like looking at terrain and circling what was caribou habitat, what was other heli skiing places and parks and started narrowing it down, narrowing it down. And in town, uh, there's a beloved coffee shop called Oso Negro where I would get my coffee every morning. And one guy there started paying attention and noticed that I was going in like fully dirt bag geared out in old crappy snowboarding gear um, every day early. And he's like, where you, where you been going? I'm like, oh, I'm just kind of checking it out, trying to figure out some stuff. I was just thinking. And then we started having coffee and we befriended each other. And then after a while, I found out that this guy was John Buffery, who is like the dude, you know, like really down to earth, really qualified mountain guide with lots of experience in commercial heli and cat skiing and all over the world. And... After a while, he says, you know, I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll help you out. You know, if you need something or you're sketched or you want to learn, like, let me know. Let's, you know, give me a call next time you're going up. Jeff is going back and forth from Tahoe. One day, Buff gives him a call. He says, I've got some maps I want to show you that might work for a spot. So I go up to his house and I walk in the door and I walk in. And as I turn around the corner, there's a chessboard there. And Craig Kelly is sitting at the other chair. And I took like two steps back and looked at Buff and said, is that Craig Kelly right there? He's like, yeah, Craig and I are good friends. Come on in. I want you guys to meet. At that time, Craig Kelly was the face of snowboarding. He was a living legend who had his own Burton snowboard model, who regularly filmed with Warren Miller. And he was also kind of iconic because he turned down this multi-million dollar contract to kind of be a snowboard racer. And instead, he chose to spend his time in the mountains kind of doing it on his own terms. People loved him for that. We had tea and talked about this idea I had and about snowboarding and the everything. And Craig was like, that's, you're, that's, yeah, that's totally on point. Basically, with Craig and Buff's direction, they steered me towards this piece of terrain because there's gnarlier places to go do stuff. But with the cats, what really makes a lot of sense is kind of long ridges with lots of varied aspects and terrain features, as opposed to like giant peaks that you would just kind of try to get the cat on top of. And, and as we were touring it, it was really steep and really cool features everywhere. Craig, like Jeff, had come to Nelson for a girl, Savina. After Craig turned down the sponsorship offer, he had taken a multi-year trip to South America with Savina, and the couple returned with a little girl and settled in Nelson while Craig embarked on completing his guide training. Jeff and Craig became good friends. As a sponsored athlete, Craig had a helicopter budget, so he could call Jeff when he had an open seat, and they would scout terrain. Suddenly, Jeff is surrounded by one of the best guides in Canada, and snowboarding's biggest star. Things were getting serious, but Jeff needed money. And I take a mortgage out on the house that I had put a bunch of money down on, but real estate was going bananas in Tahoe. So I took about $50,000 out, put it down, and said to myself, that money's gone. You're never getting that money back. But if nothing else, 
you're going to have the adventure of a lifetime hanging out with like Craig and Buff and going up and seeing Paul and going up to DC and doing this thing. So it, man, like I'll pay that off. I'll deal with it. Worst case scenario, I'll sell my house and I screwed up and I'll go be a kid. 50 grand. I thought that was like the Taj Mahal of money. Jeff made the move north, got an apartment with Paula and Jim. We were like the budget king. It was like, how many ways can you make ramen noodles? We made sandwiches out of like the 20% off meat in the store. Jim was great at that. They committed to the idea. Jim and Jeff had five or six different spots, but knew that the tenure just across the lake from Nelson was going to be the best. They had identified an ideal piece of land, but they knew that they had to be subtle. So they started arranging meetings with various communities and local leaders to start pitching the idea. Some got quite spirited. As you can imagine, people love these mountains, right? And they don't want to see some, some dude from California, snowboarder guy coming up and stealing their stash, you know? They took the input, crossed parcels off the lifts, but kept circling back to the same spot. It was the most low profile. There was a wilderness closure at the bottom, so there's no hunting. There was no road to the place. Compared to the other acreages they had suggested, there was little to no use. They filed for a management plan with the government. They commenced with various impact studies they needed to do. And most of the time, they're just kind of making this up as they go along. It took about six months and wrote this plan because Jim and I had nothing to do. So we both worked like 18 hours a day on this plan. Like the guy in Cranbrook would say, well, I need a few, we'd send it a, a draft and be like, can you give us some, how's this coming, you know? And, He'd be like, I'm just really busy. I can't look at it till Thursday. And we would drive to Cranbrook and like buy donuts for everybody in the office and sit there and be like, yeah, we just want to know, you know, we're here. We got nothing else going on right now. They got an initial sign off on the plan and then had to commence with another round of public meetings. Most cat skiing places have about 15 to 20,000 acres. We went in and asked for 68,000 acres the, fir the first time thinking, Hey man, if there's a problem, we can just like cut that whole thing out of there. So let's just ask for all of it. We whittled it down at those public meetings we'd go to and some ski tours would say, hey, that's our stash. You'd be like, well, how do you feel about it now if that's not a part of it at all? And at someone else, well, that is our watershed back there. Maybe we don't want your snowcats driving around back there. And you, well, that's out. How does it look now? And, and by doing that, I think we gained a bit of, um, you know, rationale to say, hey, we're willing to work with that. You know, we didn't come in and say, we have to have all this. We're willing to make it malleable. So we ended up putting in for 36,000 acres with the government and had a series of public meetings, did all this stuff. And in 1999, they gave us the tenure. It was on. Craig Kelly and Buff were guiding. He knew it was risky, but the idea was off the ground and running. That year, uh, I realized I was all in. I couldn't borrow any more money on my house. And we got the tenure. We had like a snowmobile. We had a R22 1981 Toyota pickup. It was pretty sweet, the red sled. Uh, I think we had a snowmobile trailer that we used to haul stuff up and down the hill and maybe a dirt bike. That was our fleet. At this point, we needed some more cash. 
So I started kind of reaching out to the Friends Network to see if anyone knew anyone who maybe would want to get involved. Jeff calls his friend in Seattle, Arlie. And Arlie's got a thought. He says, you know the guys from the Foo Fighters? You know those guys? They, those guys fucking love snowboarding. Like, Nate is the best dude. He is a Seattle guy. He's a great rider. Like, I know him pretty good. I'm going to tell him what you're doing. And sure enough, Nate Mendel and Dave Grohl get involved. Sure enough, like it was September, we had to buy a snowcat if we were going to make this work the first year. And snowcats are really expensive and they don't just give them to you on the payment plan, you know? So now I'm like, I got the greatest guide I could ever ask for, Craig Kelly on my team, the girl of my dreams, a really smart dude who makes me smarter. And then the Foo Fighters jump on board and they buy us our first snowcat. And the funny thing is we didn't actually, at that point we realized, we didn't know anything about snowcats, right? And then we also realized we didn't do any marketing or anything. We needed to figure out how to get customers. So our plan was that Jim would work on the snowcat and I would literally like go around town to breakfast and stuff and look for people in town who were here to ski and be like, hey, where are you guys from? You know, how long are you in town? Would you like to try cat skiing? You know, we would get people that would do it except the snow was terrible that first year. Like the cat couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't really open anything up. We didn't have very many roads and it was really brand new. But every run was a first run. Like we were naming all these runs and it was so exciting and Craig Kelly was out there. So people would meet at the dock at the Prestige Inn at six o'clock in the morning. We had rented this boat and they would come down in their ski gear after some dude talks to them at breakfast the day before and walk down this icy ramp onto this old logging boat and across the lake we'd go. And Craig was there and anyone who was a snowboarder, you know, was like, is that Craig Kelly? Yeah, that's Craig. He's, he's your guide today. People would be losing it on this boat going across the lake. Then we'd get into a truck with chains on all four, a budget rental truck with chains on all four tires and our snowmobile trailer on the back where everyone would put their skis and stuff. And like, 18 of us would pile into a truck out in the back, you know, on the trailer and up the road we would go to wherever the snow line was. And then we'd jump in this old snowcat and away we'd go for the day. And that was the first year. And we pulled it off. Like we actually pulled it off. And at the end of the day, we didn't go out of business quite. The second season went even better. They built more roads along the ridges. They built a geodesic dome they dubbed the Hippie Dome, where they could bring guests and serve tea before heading out for the day. So we had a place now to go rooping up on the snowmobiles and it had a wood stove in it. You could spend the night, but it was really gnarly in there. It was really wet, you know, and... They were getting more clients. Jeff was still spending time in Tahoe, where he was fixing up his house as part of the deal on the second mortgage. I had to continually be improving my home in Tahoe. And I'm a hand, handyman. I don't know that anyone would agree with that now, but I was fairly handy then. So one night Jeff is working on his house and he's got an electrician friend over. And they've been wiring this for days. And we would talk about Baldface. What's it like in DC? And this guy is like Mr. Scuba, the Tuna Man. He's like a Grateful Dead fan, but with hot tuna. Tuna Man and Jeff talked about two things and only two things. It was either hot tuna 
or skiing in BC at Baldface. So one night, Toon Man asked Jeff if he has a business plan for Baldface and could he have one? So Jeff prints him out a copy. Like three weeks later, I get a phone call and it's this guy. He's like, hey, my name's Rob. Who are you? And I'm like, what? He's like, what? Why? How did you get a business plan on my desk? I'm like, what? He's like, there's this business plan for bald face on my desk. What are you, who, how did you get in my house? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm like the only, I go, do you know a guy named Brian, the tuna man? And he's like, you mean the electrician guy? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, he was over to dinner last night. I'm like, the tuna man's helping me out. And he asked me for a copy of my business plan. And he must have thrown it on your desk to try to bro me out, you know? Rob had made the most of the software and dot-com boom in the 1990s and had money to spend. Jeff polished up the business plan, Rob helped him refine it, and then decides to pull the trigger on providing some capital to build a lodge. We got these plans to build this lodge that is like the mega awesome lodge of all time. It had like a turret on the top wildlife viewing platform, a library, it had a games room with a pinball machine in it. It had like, it was gonna be awesome, man. Like three stories tall with a river rock fireplace going through the ceiling. And we were gonna build this thing for like, we had figured out like, we were gonna build that thing for like three, $4 million and it was gonna be like, boom, open for business, done, right? They had to build a better access road so they could bring in equipment. So Jeff sets to work in the summer of 2001. He's selling seats for the next year. He's got a German tour agency lined up to fill three days out of every week. Things are looking good for the next chapter of Bald Face. Finally, the first excavator shows up and it's like, starts working and it's going along pretty good. And then it runs into some rock. You know, it's like, all right, well, let's go blast the rock out of there. And, you know, they bring up all the shit and then it goes a little further. And then, oh, wow, it's really rocky up here. And this, this road to get up here ended up costing like five times what their original estimate was. And I'm like, uh, uh oh. And I'd say that was September like 10th, 2001. And then September 11th comes, and Rob, being a smart businessman, is like, okay, right now, I don't know what's gonna happen with the world, but you need to put the brakes on this because all bets are off right now. Our mega pinball machine, awesome wildlife viewing, insane lodge, pretty much turned into like a 40 by 40 timber frame structure with stress skin panels on it and seven Atco trailers sticking off the side of it. No siding, no trim on the windows, no flooring, like, like nothing, like nothing. The German tour group canceled the reservations. But Jeff, Jim, and Craig poured their hearts into getting the place open. We worked so hard that year. Craig was right there with it. Like we, we worked. That first guide training was not guide training. That first guide training was like putting insulation in before the drywall, you know? It was crazy. We opened the doors and helicopters flew people up and they came in and they were kind of like, uh, is this gonna be cool? We had two cats at that time and they were a little, little better than the original one. And the skiing was awesome. We cut a ton of roads that summer and all of a sudden we started opening up, up runs and people were freaking out about how good the terrain was. The phone started ringing and it was like, hey, this is, this is Burton. 
you know, Craig said he's having a good time out there. We want to do our senior sales meeting out there. How much for the whole lodge for a week? You know, and it was like, oh, yeah, this is happening right on, you know? Baldface was gaining traction. Guests were booking. They were coming back. By 2003, Baldface was beginning to redefine cat skiing as a no-nonsense place where it was about writing, not high-end, elitist hotel feel that defined most of the operations in existence. And then... Right then, end of January, Craig took off to go take his guiding exams and was killed in an avalanche. It was this like first, like super heavy blow. It was like, oh no, wait a minute, like not him, not anybody, but not, not Craig. January 2003, Craig was tail guiding around Revelstoke when a massive slide broke loose, burying eight and killing seven skiers in his group. It was a massive blow, not just to Craig's family and close friends, but to the snowboarding community at large. The accident captured national headlines and left many in Nelson in mourning. And it was like, no, 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 that's not part of the fun. The core community of guides and staff that had developed into a tight-knit group left questioning what they were doing, the choices they were making, with themselves and the clients who had come to ride. We stayed tight, you know? We, we kept it together as it all fell apart. We continued for the rest of the year, and we went riding every day, and it was, the snowboarding was really good. And we were really smart about things. You know, back then, like, we kind of knew what we were doing, but the train was still new, and the guides, I think because of Craig's passing, like, we were on point. We made the conservative call all the time, and yet the terrain provided amazing conditions. Right after Craig, like a lot of things really started coming together too, because I think we were all in the right mind space. Things were going well for Jeff and Paula. They bought a house together, got married, had their first child, a girl, and then a second. The lodge developed, they built a roof over the trailers, and connected them together. They got some siding. He sold his dream home in Tahoe to get out from the debt, but really, he was living the dream up in Nelson. He put the money right back into the business. They built six chalets right next to the lodge so that they could bring in more high-end guests. We build the chalets and we open for business. And it's nice and people are out skiing and we kind of have some good media stuff going on. And somewhere along the line, uh, people started getting sick. And it was like, oh, they must have just been partying hard that night. The next morning, it was like, wow, there's like six people that don't want to go skiing today because they're not feeling good. Whoa, I wonder what that's all about. And then, kind of a long, terrible story, the old lodge had somebody that came up that had the Norwalk virus, which is this really gnarly virus. It's really hard to get rid of, and you'll hear about it going into old folks' homes, and you get the shits, and you maybe throw up a couple times, and then it kind of goes away. The problem is it's incredibly contagious and incredibly hard to kill. It was crazy. I remember... Standing with Savina outside the back door, looking at her, just saying, I don't think this is, like, at this point, this isn't worth it anymore. So that was a really challenging winter, which almost killed the company. And yet some people wouldn't get sick. And the skiing was awesome. 
we start getting like in GQ magazine, the New York Times runs a front page, Sunday travel edition on the place. Every ski snowboard magazine, we've had movies filmed up here. It's all like pretty legit on the marketing side. And we're, it's on. Like all of a sudden I went from like fixing gutters in Tahoe to like, I've got two kids, a business with like 30 employees. I'm going snowboarding every day and it's working, you know? And I really surrounded myself with some amazing, amazing people to make it all happen. And it's, it's really fun. We're having a good time. And then uh, Travis Rice starts showing up. Travis, who arguably is this generation's Craig Kelly and Jeff, struck up a friendship. Travis had run a contest in Jackson Hole called the Natural Selection. It was a different kind of snowboarding contest, one that epitomized the go-anywhere, do-anything spirit of free riding. He hadn't run it in a few years. All of a sudden, we were kicking around this, these ideas about like mega, like, like build the perfect load. Like, and, and we looked at some mountain biking stunts and some stuff we had built around here. And we came up with this idea and we, kind of like with Baldface, we flew around looking at a bunch of different terrain features. And this one right by the lodge here was like kind of what we were talking about. They signed a contract with Red Bull and went to work. Jeff hired 20 new employees to develop the course. They did an impact study. They got the permits. And at the same time, TGR asked us if we can build like this massive gap jump back here uh, and some other stuff for the, the TGR movie that year. And so we were in May and man, it has been an awesome winter, but we're prepping for this TGR shoot. Travis has been out. We're looking at the trees late in the season to see how things work to get ready for cutting the supernatural course. And then one night, we just start hearing these like really loud smashing noise, <laughs> noises. And it was the hockey playoffs. So we're all downstairs watching hockey and, and then hear like this really loud crack. Man, we went around, looked everywhere. What the hell could that be? And then like two hours later, crack. The next day, Jeff goes up into the structure above the old trailers into the shell of the building. And he saw something terrifying. The trusses that support the whole roof and building were snapping under the load of the season's incredible snowfall. We immediately like call a million dudes, start shoveling off the roofs, doing all, everything we can, have the engineers up all this stuff. And slowly the building is like, it's losing its squareness. So we go into like panic mode and start like getting all the bedding out, getting everything like the, I'm so cheap, you know, I'm like, get out, like, come on. And then finally, at some point, Dave comes up to me and he shows me, he's like, dude, the building is about four and a half inches out of plumb right now. He's like, I, I, we gotta, I don't think we can let anybody else out there. And then we pulled everybody out and I went to town that night because the next day was Mother's Day. And, uh, oh yeah, right before that Mother's Day, we had twins. They call me first thing in the morning and they're like, yeah, dude, 12.15 last night, the entire lot completely collapsed. Like there's nothing left. I'm cooking Paula uh, 
Mother's Day breakfast at that point. And I'm like, I got to go up to the lodge. And I told her, and it was just the saddest thing. At the point where it finally seemed like it was all working, like everything was going well, things literally collapsed. So Jeff did what he had always done. He took some deep breaths, buckled down, and stuck with his vision. Sales were great. They were almost completely booked for the next winter, and they had to get open for that. So Jeff circled up his business partners. They didn't know what they were going to get from insurance. They just knew that they had to build something immediately. So Jeff lined up the money. But at this stage, the building was way beyond his skills as a Tahoe handyman. So he lined up a small army of tradesmen and spent the entire summer working around the clock to get open for the winter season. I want to say it was 70 or 80 dudes up here, tradesmen, working three shifts so they'd sleep for eight hours and then they'd work for 16 hours. We had the kitchen going, constantly turning out meals. I mean, it was amazing. And we got it done. We built this insane lodge. So my job was just like, you know, bringing donuts and going to town, getting an extra extension cord here. Whatever it was, I wanted to make sure they had it, you know. But we got it done. And then we opened, uh, we had a family Christmas up here. And then we opened on the 26th of December, 2011. And concurrent to building this lodge, we built the entire Supernatural course. So all of a sudden it kind of went from like echo trailers with something over them to this like mega awesome architecturally designed lodge that I got to highlight to the entire world on NBC, you know, television network with Travis Rice and the Red Bull power behind it. So for all the work, it ended up working out really good because of the contest. The contest was the coolest thing that's ever happened in we got it for seven days. We brought the best snowboarders in the world together. We brought legends of the sport together to be the judges. I randomly invited out some of the best dudes who could have been here. Jamie Lynn and Mike Perillo, Billy Anderson, just to help out and drive sleds around and stuff. And it went off. It went off without a problem. Like nobody got hurt. did an avalanche. The weather cooperated. We had great parties. And we did it on the second day. So we had five days of free riding with the best snowboarders in the world. And as good as snowboarding has been to me, as good as it, it's taught me so much. It's, all, it's, my, it's my path, right? Man, that was just being able to host that and bring that crew together and document it the way that we did. And okay, well, you got the Norwalk, you got the 9-11 money problems, you got the lodge collapse, you got losing Craig. You got literally like a thousand other catastrophes in there. But you look back at it and it's like, that stuff seems to matter a lot less if you're living in the moment right now. Because the moment can be really good. And that's what you got, you know, that's what I concentrate on. It's like, well, snowboarding was good today. <laughs> you know, guests are happy today. And there's a lot of that. What do you think you've learned from, from building this? And, and by this, I don't just mean the lodge. I mean the whole idea behind Baldface. It's community. If you attach your ego to your idea, it's probably going to fail. But if you have a good idea and you let it be its own good idea, and you think of it as more like a funnel, if you bring good people around, their good energy is going to go into the funnel and it's going to become this condensed stream of awesome. If 
I had this idea that it had to have a, a wildlife viewing tower on the top because that was the first one. I wasn't going to budge at all on my, my vision. We would have died along the way. Ballface seems more than just a lodge or, or a place you go riding or skiing. After all these years, does it feel that way to you? I wrote a mission statement at some point. And the mission statement of the business is to share the infinite wisdom of the backcountry with those wise enough to seek it out. That's all we are. Whether it's a lodge or a dome or a boat and a truck ride across a lake, all we are is the portal so that people can come up here and just get into it, right? And I don't care if you're ski touring or heli skiing or cat skiing or you're cross country skiing or standing on the side of the road admiring the mountains. Like that moment is essential to clear thought, in my opinion. I think that's the answer. It's my church. I'm not trying to become super rich. I'm not trying to maximize vertical. I'm not trying to do anything. I just want to let people experience it on their own terms. Quality of the connection is what it really should be about. Really, a lot of snowboarders now don't ride at resorts. The street kids, the really good ones, don't, they're riding in the city and they're creating really cool terrain for themselves to ride. And then the really high-end free riders are touring into the backcountry now. And there's a lot of people getting drawn away from the experience that are still snowboarding. But they're, they're dirt bags. They're truly dirt bags. And they're, they're the essence of the sport. You know, they're the edges. You know, and that's you know, a great place to be. Many thanks to Jeff for sitting down with me. I knew some of what had gone into this story, but man, sitting down, you realize how much worry, sweat, and belief goes into creating something. Congratulations, Jeff. Music today by David Beard, La Savvy Fav, Battery Life, Emmerich, O'Death, Matt Mays, and Block Party, all courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. You can find links to the artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from you, whether it's a pledge contribution, a story idea, a t-shirt order, or even an email of thanks, you keep the diaries thriving. It is so cool. If you want to help, you can find all the necessary links at dirtbagdiaries.com. The diaries would not be possible without the good people at Patagonia. Their legacy collection includes iconic clothing from their first 40 years, but reinterpreted with modern materials like organic cotton and recycled polyester. Find it at patagonia.com. Thanks to Kuat for the unwavering support. This is the little company that believed they could make a better product for you. See their lineup of roof racks, hitch racks, and gear baskets at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. This episode of The Diaries was produced and edited by Becca Call and Jen Altschul. It was written by me, Fitzcahal. We'll all be back soon with our annual year of big ideas. As always, thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year. Maybe you've got to be more demanding